0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Davis, the Pod Medic, and we are jumping in with an, an action packed week of stuff going on here. We've got a lot of active weather situations going on in the mid section of the United States and stretching up into the Northeast, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here with our meteorologists in just a second. Um, before we can do anything else, though, we need to bring in Sam Bradley, my esteemed co host. Hey, Sam.
1: Hey, Jamie, it's freaking cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. It was like 12 degrees here two days ago, and then now it's 48 degrees outside. So
1: Yeah, I, w- I went out early this afternoon. It was five. Do you know it's hard to even breathe when it's five degrees? And uh, a couple nights this week, we're going into minus territory. And why is that, Dan DePodwin? This is all your fault.
2: Why? Well, it's it, it. I mean, I hate to give a simple answer that it's winter, but it is Ugh. it is winter. We're in the Dad. heart of it. Right. Really, Mo- we're at the coldest right, time along. Of year, right? <laughs> at the coldest time of year, really. I mean, from a historical climatological standpoint, the end of January, early February, usually the coldest time of the, the winter in most places. So we're well, certainly won't, at that point, I
1: won't debate that. <laughs> So, what is this, this winter storm Landon doing elsewhere since we've passed it off to Texas and parts beyond?
2: Yeah, it's one of the more impressive storms I've seen in a while in terms of how far it's impacted. It's impacted a large area of the country. Could be worse, Sam, where you are, it's above zero. You could go up to Minneapolis or places in the northern plains where they had 20, 30, 40 below this morning, right? It was like 42 below at International Falls this morning. If anyone, watched the uh, if anyone's a soccer fan the. US men's national soccer team uh, played in Minneapolis last night outside on uh, Wednesday night and it was uh, two degrees so a little cold for a soccer match but uh, yeah we've had we've had all this weather all across the country with snow ice and and plain rain and even some severe thunderstorms uh, tornado down in Alabama uh, today on this Thursday afternoon unfortunately it looks like at least one fatality I believe that might be the first fatality of 2020. Uh, So really, we've had all sorts of threats from this storm, and it's been impressive in terms of how much ice and snow has fallen in places that don't typically receive it. A lot of ice in Dallas, Texas, San Antonio, for instance, as well. Uh, Several, you know, like a half foot of snow or so in Oklahoma City. um, And really a major ice issue um, all the way through parts of uh, the ohio valley through kentucky and where dr joe is and he's obviously not on tonight for a reason uh, and then up through uh, ohio and western pennsylvania so a very impactful storm over a very large area
0: jamie is it we've gone back to 2020 yeah i I just i don't know but i was curious (laughs) i mean one of the things i heard about it was that it's slow moving but still generating quite a bit of moisture where, where is that moisture just coming up from the gulf is that how that's working
2: Yeah, it's a combination. Actually, there's some Gulf moisture, but actually, most of the moisture from this storm is really being pulled in from the Pacific Ocean, and it's being streamed across Mexico and up into the central United States. Some of it does come from the Gulf of Mexico too. And really, we've had this pattern that's been this weather pattern across the United States has sort of stayed in a similar spot for the last uh, two days, and that's why we've seen we've seen a couple of waves of low pressure along this front. So basically, you have a front that's uh, a clash between air masses, and you get a A storm that rides along that front and north of it where you have cold air, you get snow and ice. And to the south, you get heavy rain. And we've been in that pattern for a couple of days. And that's why we've seen this same type of weather uh, in in similar spots and why we've had a couple of rounds of snow and ice in a lot of spots.
1: Yeah, we got a note from Joe. He said, well, they're they're on low power. They were out of power earlier. And there's been a lot of um, multi-vehicle accidents and all that kind of thing. He says, yeah, pretty much a normal day in Memphis. <laughs> but I don't think he's used to this much cold. I'm quite sure. Um, Miss Becky, you want to add to that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think
1: Dan did a, a pretty good
3: summary. I guess I'll just briefly talk about the the impacts. Um, I mean, this has caused numerous uh, traffic, uh, travel delays from roads to, to airports, a ton of cancellations, a lot of accidents, several, you know, 25, 30 vehicle accidents um, in like Missouri. It, it's, it's tough, right? Because it's over such an extensive period or extensive area. So just really a lot of impacts and it's with these events that go from like rain to sleet to freezing rain it's really really difficult to to treat the roads because it's it all just gets washed away ahead of time so it's one of those situations where people really need to be monitoring the forecast and paying attention to the precip type because and the temperature really because if it's if it's raining and the temperature is 34 it's just rain you drop that temperature two degrees three degrees and suddenly everything is becoming a skating rink um, and once you're out there and you're in it, it's a little hard to, to do much about it. So it's a tricky, a tricky forecast, and a tricky situation for a lot of the country.
1: Uh, yes. Been ice skating for the better part of a week. And I want you to know, Dan, I got a new I treated myself to an Apple watch and it has AccuWeather on it. Just wanted you to Outstanding.
2: know that. Love yeah. it. Love it. So good to hear.
1: How are you guys faring on the East Coast now, or is it still on its way in
2: there? We've got um, rain right now here in the middle of Pennsylvania for another probably hour or two, and then we're going to go to some freezing rain and sleet. So we're right above freezing here, but it's going to be a messy overnight and a lot of uh, cancellations for Friday. It's going to just—temperature's going to fall into the teens basically from here on out, so it's going to be—everything's going to be—, everything's gonna be rock solid by tomorrow morning so not not great to end the week that's for sure
1: literally rock solid
0: (laughs) what about you jamie in maryland i think it's going to stay mostly rain here but you know it is going to turn cold um in going into saturday from what i can tell on my accuweather app so um we'll have to see um tends to be pretty accu for accuweather so good stuff yeah
1: and that, that was the only weather thing I saw, so naturally I
0: was happy with
1: that because AccuWeather very accurate, and we have Dan to test. That's why we could blame him.: this, Dan. Is this, is this episode I'm, being I'm brought to us by-, by... We used to blame Kyle for everything, but now we can blame Dan, so there you go. Anyway, so is there anything happening next week that you guys are aware of?
2: You know, it's actually, it looks like... I really hope I don't jinx us here, but I, I really don't say think,
3: it. don't don't say it, Dan. Don't do it.
2: <laughs> I think we might be a little quieter. I'll I'll just put it like that.
3: No oh, the Q a word little quieter. Jamie, you never say the Q word, Dan. Ah uh, sorry. You just ruined next week.
2: I probably ruined it. I probably ruined it. So it's not but we're just, still in the middle of winter.
1: <laughs> not just in the ER on the streets, Jamie. They say that word in meteorology. It's yep. all over. So I'll think, yep. of you, think of you next
2: week, Dan. You can blame me. You can blame me.
1: <laughs> okay, well, moving right along. Um, when we had Moose Mutlow here some weeks ago, when he talked about his family liaison uh, officer role and and wrote a book on it, in fact, um, you know, he talked about that role in a more professional Capacity and and you know it fits with just about any organization, including sports and and whatnot, and certainly disaster organizations. And I got to thinking about that in terms of something that's always on my mind, and that's preparing responders and preparing preparing family members for a responder. You know, back when Katrina hit. Uh, I was working for the state of California, or shortly thereafter, and we were just starting with concepts like the ambulance strike team and so forth and so on. So they kind of rushed those into service based on the model we created and sent them to Louisiana. Well, nobody was quite ready for that. None of these people had gone into disaster, knew what they were getting into, um, now they're doing a lot more training in that respect, but um, it, it just got really interesting. So I'm not talking about a specific role, but stuff that we need to think about. Because someone in that role, and to be honest, I was in that CISM role in when we were at Ground Zero, and that was Pretty difficult because it's hard to take care of everybody else's mental health when you yourself are in the middle of the dirt, quite literally. So, you know, where we're, um, Moose was talking about that, being a liaison, being an advocate. So I just want to touch on a few things, and you guys can reflect from either your experience or, you know, what you would question about this. But looking at things before a disaster— are responders really ready? I mean, if they go with a federal organization, they're clearly going to have a lot of training before they hit the streets. Um, In fact, the team I'm with in California, they have you as part of the California state team and responding there before you leave for a federal disaster. So that worked out really well. But Do they have the right skill set? I I don't know where else they would be coming from. You know, maybe I think back to the ambulance companies, again, that were sending people out. But when they're leaving for battle, are they really emotionally prepared? You know, do they know to bring the right things? All that kind of thing. OK, so I know a lot of them don't get training. They may be the best EMTs and medics in the field. But they're used to their own, and, and same with ER folks that come out. They're warm, well lighted, functional environment, and then suddenly they're in a very different scenario. Jamie, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that.
0: Well, and, and I think the challenge is that, you know, when it, the training is really what makes the difference in these situations, I think, and and understanding what like you've mentioned, what, what to bring, what, what do we need to take with us? And, and so I think it really comes down to what kind of prepared training is going into making these responders ready to go on these deployments on a short notice situation. Um, Obviously if you're on a DMAT team or a USAR team for the federal, at the federal level, there are different levels of, of alert that, um, you know, you know, you're on alert for that month or, you know, so you're kind of semi-prepared to go when you see a situation crop up in the news that you might be called in. And so that gives you a chance to kind of step up your awareness of what's going to be needed. Um, the challenge, I think, really comes when the the families of those involved are are brought to they, – they kind of go along whether they're part of the team or not in in a certain sense psychologically – um, where, you know, you have child care issues, you have other family responsibilities that may have been handled in part by that responder that are now they're not there to deal with it. And so the family is the family prepared for that deployment. Um, and if it's not a distant deployment, but say it's a situation in your own backyard um, and you're a responder in a community that's been struck by disaster, how prepared for that disaster and its aftermath? is your family and home um, while you're out on the street responding to different situations. So there's a lot of levels to unwrap there.
1: There is. And that's why it was hard to come up with the right bullet points for this discussion, but you're absolutely right. And anybody that works in EMS, and we talked about this before, their family needs to know if something hits home, you know, We hope hope to keep the responders on the street. So that would go back to what you're saying, Jamie. Have you prepared your family? Do you have disaster supplies? Do you have a plan where the kids know where to meet you? I mean, there's so much to that. But if that is the case, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable being out there helping other people. Because the last thing they need is for the fire department or the ambulance company folks to just bail. Because they want to go home and see what's going on. So, that again is where preparation and training and all of that really makes a difference. But you're right, are the families ready? We don't really give training to families so much. And I would like to see a lot more of that because what you don't know is going to be scary. So, whatever team you're on, or whatever, you know, like you referenced DMAT and USAR. You need to let your family know what—well, yeah, this is a yes and no question, because as much as I want to say, it, let them know what kind of things you get into. But, you know, it used to be for DMAT, hurricanes and tornadoes and other acts of nature, and then there was Ground Zero. And then there was a, a, an earthquake in Haiti, and suddenly we were going international. But to the extent that you can— they need to know how safe you're going to be because that's going to be their biggest concern. Becky, I'm sure you have some thoughts.
3: Yeah, I. So I guess there's a a, a bit of a the different scenarios here. There's the scenario that I think you guys were talking about of someone's going into, you know, very recently active or still active disaster area. Um, I was looking over some material from. Uh, So within the weather community, there's been some some work in the last several years to talk about critical incident stress in terms of of severe weather events. You know, hurricanes, flood, tornadoes, wildfires, things like that. Um, And so obviously you're working the event. It, It might be happening in your backyard, which is very stressful. You might be worried about your family. There's been instances where meteorologists have been on air and literally tracked the tornado hitting their house. Uh, you know, knowing that their, their spouse or their children were at home. And it's it's terrifying. It's on public display because they're a broadcaster. Um, so there's there's that aspect. There's the aspect of you're a, t- a family member who is working the event, and your family has to be understanding that you're not going to be there to help them prepare to go through the event because you are needed as a, a public servant. Um, or even in the private sector, you needed to work that event to alert, you know, your community and the public. Um and then there's there's the the after afterwards when you're going out and doing damage surveys and seeing the disaster impacts firsthand talking to people who have been impacted and that takes a huge toll and you you come home and you see your family and you're completely drained you're exhausted you're sad you know how does your family handle that um and so the National Weather Service at least has been doing some some critical incident stress work with families where they specifically talk about what the family's reactions might have how you can help children cope with not only the event but also a parent who may be suffering from you know maybe post-traumatic stress disorder if they saw really horrific things it's such a i feel like it's such an onion and you just keep peeling back these layers of of different events and different people and all these different ways that people can be can be impacted and it's just it's a lot there's so much work to be done here i think
1: yeah, and and based on that, back you know we're talking about all the strange weather we've had. So, the, you know, it's not like you can put things in a nutshell and know what to expect. You know, what when you were talking, I was thinking about the the uh, shooting in, in Vegas. You know, at at the concert, and you know the news was showing these responders going out there while there's still live fire. I can can imagine how a family member would feel on something like that. But have you ever had a situation, Dan, where you were really uncomfortable, but required to do what it is you do at work?
2: That's a great question. Um, You know, I think I've been fortunate in that regard where I personally have not been in that type of uncomfortable situation, unless Becky can think of one that I've shared with her (laughs) that I may forget at this point. I think Becky's actually been in a couple of situations, and I have some friends, uh, some good friends who've been in those types of situations. One example that comes to mind is someone that we know who um, lives in the Houston area and um, provides really great information about uh, weather in the Houston area and had to evacuate during Harvey and uh, i know in speaking with him after the fact it's really left it, it took a huge toll on him and his family about you know he was working remotely from dallas and he had to provide information to a whole bunch of people on what to do and he was you know basically determining you know he was he was sharing information about you know like people would ask him like you know should i stay in my house or if i do will i die and he had to try to have a response to that type of question um i've never had a situation like that fortunately um Myself, we obviously warn a lot of different things with our work we do at AccuWeather. Um, but nothing that's like personally hit home for me, we, we d- do not do damage surveys, which um, is, I, I guess, a, a sort of a positive, but um, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a challenge. Um, oh, and I guess Becky's reminding me here uh, of, of a, a, good, a good example from uh, actually just recently back in September when Hurricane Ida um, or the moisture left over from it hit New York City. Um, My parents were actually driving that evening um, during the beginning of the flash flood event. And I had told them, I had called them before they had decided to leave their house. And I said, you might not want to drive this evening because you're going to have significant flood potential. And they ended up driving anyway, and they almost got into a really bad situation. And they were very, um, sort of their eyes were open to the whole thing. And it just shows you that even with a son who's a meteorologist, and we know other people who have friends or family member who are meteorologists who told people, don't, you know, don't drive that night, and people did anyway. Uh, but until you experience it, if you never experienced something before, it can be really hard to know what's going on. Exactly. Well,
1: if you ever do, Dan, you have Becky there to help you get through it. So Absolutely. <laughs> so any more thoughts on that, Bex? Yeah, there's actually a lot of examples
3: that come to mind. Uh, Harvey, my, my sister lived in Texas, and she, at a certain point, turned the alerts off on her phone because they were so constant. She happened to be in one of the outer bands that kept spinning up tornadoes. But it was just for probably close to 24 hours, it was just constant tornado warnings. And so she turned them off, which I don't think she meant to do this, but it it, it went back to me to constantly be monitoring the radar and alerting them of any time that they needed to to get to shelter. And she had two young kids and... There was, was several times that I told her to take shelter, but with kids, it's really hard. So they were just trying to sort of manage the best they could. And then there was one point that I had to tell her that if they did go to their attic because of the flooding, they needed to have an axe to be able to get their way out of the attic. And that it was it, just it was such a a bizarre like I don't even know two to three days where I remember feeling so, so stressed and concerned and fearful the entire time, not having any idea how that was going to play out and if they were going to be safe and if the next tornado spin-up was going to get them or if the flooding was going to become too severe in their area. And they came very, very close, within a mile, I think, of a tornado hitting their house. Um, and it, it, it's situations like that when we have family members who are in a, a crisis, in a in a disaster situation, that we don't really realize the toll until on us until it's it's over – you sort of realize how your jaw's been clenched and your shoulders have been up to your ears. And it's it, it, it's a lot. Um, and I guess from a, a personal standpoint, there was one time back in 2012 when I lived in Wichita, Kansas, that from work I watched a tornado on radar hit my apartment. <gasps> really? <laughs> have I never told this story? No, I
1: don't remember that.
3: Oh, man. I had been in Kansas for all of three months at this point. I moved in January 2012, this tornado happens, on a high-risk day in um, in April, and it was a long-track tornado, started in Oklahoma, tracked all the way up to to Kansas. I lived in a second-story apartment, which didn't have a good shelter option. I had asked them a couple of days prior where I should shelter, and they're like, oh, don't worry, tornadoes don't come into into the city, they don't cross the Arkansas River, which was just hilarious in hindsight. Um And I didn't have internet at the time, so I stayed at work for like four hours past the end of my shift because there was shelter at work, and there was internet, and there was friends and co-workers. And we're we're tracking this tornado coming into town and realizing that a ton of us lived on the east side of town, and it was going to go over a lot of our apartments. Um, The building one or two over from mine had severe damage uh, I was extremely fortunate and that it was mostly just some, some roofing and and siding that came off of my building, uh, terrorized my poor cat Blitz is forever scarred from that incident. He was home alone, unfortunately. Um, but in the initial aftermath, there were reports saying, you know, there was whole buildings down and, you know, at my apartment complex, it turns out it was just a pool shed, which wasn't well constructed, but it, it was probably one of the scariest nights of my life. Um, not having any idea what kind of home I was going to come home to. I had friends all over the country reaching out saying, are you okay? And it's like, I don't know.
1: Um, and in some respects, do. in some respects not because I'm watching my apartment blow up. Thank you. Uh,
3: yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately it turned out mostly okay. It
1: was a lot of damage, but yeah, that was that was a scary incident. Well, you know, it brings up a question If you're getting flood danger as well as potential tornadoes, in one case you go up, in the other case you go down.
0: (laughs) How are you going to know, Jamie? (laughs) Well, and, and it's just, you know, it's interesting to hear Becky talk about that. But that's, you know, exactly what responders go through when they're responding to an event and know that their family is, you know, living, riding out that event and when it's a weather related event at the same time. Um, and I've, I've done that here. We, we, uh, good grief. I think right after I became an EMT, um, I was at the firehouse for you know being on call for 24 hours during a hurricane event that came up through Maryland. And, um, you know, my f- wife and two small children at the time were, you know, kind of dealing with the, the, um, you know, being home alone in the midst of a howling windstorm. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't know if there was siding coming off my house cause I would, I was going out into the community on calls and seeing houses with siding coming off and roof shingles coming off and wondering if my newly constructed house was holding up. All right. Um, you know, and these, these are things that go through your mind when you, when you run those types of events and, You know, how often can you get away with calling home before somebody, you know, almost you almost don't want to call because you're going to get you might get that request of I need you to come home. Um, Yeah, and that's the challenge.
1: Yeah, well, I think if, you know, your wife is one of those, not only is she a strong person, but she would know what to do more so than a lot of people, fortunately. Um, Becky also mentioned that that was a huge issue during IDA in the northeast, so yeah. But you know, as for getting back to families, um, you know, let them know if you're going to be a responder, and this this can go with just working the streets or, or going out onto a team. And of course, if you do that, then you have you're gone for longer periods of time. You may have an extended deployment in a hazardous area. You're going to miss family events. So all of that really needs to be talked about in the first place. And as we've been saying, during an event, you know, try to keep clear communication. But the point you brought up, Jamie, was a good one. It's almost like you're afraid to call home because then you're going to be really torn you know, if they really want you. So this goes back again to prepare your family as much as possible. That doesn't mean that fear won't be there if something is happening close to home. But, you know, do the best you can. And what if you're in a situation, say you are on a, a, say Joe, Joe's on a USAR response. Um, Of course, Kimberly may be with him, but that's another story. But what entity communicates with the family, and I think back to to Haiti and to Katrina and some of the things where communication wasn't good, um, we actually had a team liaison uh, that was a liaison between someone on the team and the families just to let them know all was well or it wasn't. In some cases, it wasn't, Um, you know, so there's all that. Um, But, Becky, you referred to after um, disaster responders and even EMS folks and firefighters and I'm sure even meteorologists are going to bring it home. I mean, after the situation you had, Bex, I can't imagine that didn't play on your mind for quite a long time. Um, And you feel vulnerable when something that close happens, whether it's to you or a family member, to a friend. Um, That's really scary. Um, let Let me get your reflections on that before I go on, Bex.
3: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of events that... I think the more of a, more empathetic of a person you are, the more that they're going to impact you. Um, like the, the, there's two, two major tornadoes that have impacted my life. The Wichita tornado is certainly one of them. Um, but the one that was more impactful and ultimately sort of changed the trajectory of my career was the Windsor tornado in 2008 that hit my hometown. Um, I Which
1: was, is right next to my town, yeah, by the way. Yeah, you know what it <laughs>
3: um, I was storm chasing in Kansas that day, and I thought people were joking with me when they're like, no, there's a half-mile-wide tornado, and it's heading to Windsor. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I drove through town the next day, and I cried and cried and cried. I was a freshman in college. I was studying meteorology. It was my life. It was my passion. And that had just destroyed my hometown and it, it, it took me a long time to get over that. And ultimately, it's the reason that I went the direction that I did in terms of emergency management and communicating with the public and preparedness and talking to people about how to be notified and aware of severe weather. It wasn't about the science for me anymore. Um, it was completely about the human impact side. So events like that, they stay with you. After the, the Moore tornado in 2013, I was also storm chasing that day, and I drove back through the initiation of the damage path, and we're listening to reports, and you, you know you hear about the schools and the, the children that were trapped. I never chased again after that day. I couldn't do it. it it's it's events like that. Uh, for, for me, it's it's I guess mean, especially severe weather. Um, I know hurricanes and flooding have an impact on a lot of people. Wildfires, very very similar. And I think so many of us have these stories. You know, it, it, no matter who you are, what profession you're in. It's, if weather's so impactful these days, and I sometimes think we don't—we don't always realize how much it gets into our psyche.
0: Well, you look at what happened in Kentucky just recently, within a couple, what a month and a half ago, um, with the tornadoes that the tornadoes that sprung up across that front and and um, impacted parts of several states, um, and. Um, you know, you're right. I mean, no matter what your profession is, the impact was profound.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What, you know, in a sense, that's a good thing, Becky, because the role you play now in terms of looking at, you know, the human condition as it happens with a disaster and the work you're doing there, I think is extremely valuable and not everybody does that or not everybody feels comfortable with it. So the fact you were driven in that direction, I think that's a good thing, but I just really hope there's not another tornado in Windsor. I'll be running in the other direction because that's way too close. What do you think, Dan?
2: Yeah, I was going to ask a question sort of back to your comment, Sam, about, you know, the idea of, you know, as first responders or whoever uh, bringing this type of stuff home. Um, you know, we, Becky just shared some, some ways to like sort of channel how these experiences, you know, like uh, when they occur, how to channel the emotions from those to, you know, maybe drive yourself to, do, you know, to um, learn about something or get involved in something. I guess what other types of methods or techniques, you know, Sam or Jamie, can you guys talk about that are, uh, you know, that work well for first responders, maybe outside of meteorology in terms of like after an event, you know, you bring in, you know, how do you deal with some of these things um, afterwards?
1: Well, the problem is a lot of people don't deal with it. Um, it's gotten a lot of better, a lot of better, uh, in the years I've been in EMS because it used to be, and Jamie can relate to this, where if you got a problem, belly up to the bar, boys, or you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, kind of thing. It, well, CISM as a general. Rule has been much more acceptable, and we start training people from when they start in school that you're going to have these issues, so the best thing you can do is find a resource to help you and fortunately, those resources are out there. Um, the problem is we may not have that on the family side, which is a, another kind of thing. but you guys are lucky because you are in a similar profession. you can talk to each other. You know, I always thought there should be a rule that EMS people should only marry other EMS people or first responders because they get it. Um, They understand what you might have gone through. There's nothing worse than going home and telling somebody about this horrific traffic accident you worked and they go, ew, ew, I don't want to hear about that. So what do you do? You just suck into yourself and you go away because you can't communicate that to your family. Jamie?
0: And, and I think that the challenge there is really to to develop a really open level of communication. It may not be about specifics of what you're dealing with, but it is it is a way to, to understand that there is a, an underlying traumatic issue that happened at work and that you know you need some time or some space or um you know you need to have a con- you know time to do your constructive um personal routine that will help you manage the stress and strain from what what has happened and for everyone that's different it, it can be um some people have have really you know active um exercise routines or things like that um, uh, you know, they lose themselves in a hobby of some sort, you know, whether, whether it's woodworking or whatever the, the case may be. Um, and then of course there is the, the, the man, the stress management resources that are provided by the workplace. Um, and I think one of the things that, that could be done better is to, is to make the families aware of what resources are available. So when you see someone that's coping in a non productive manner, um, they're turning to alcohol. They're turning to um, drugs or other self-medication um, that we can, that the family knows that there are resources that they can reach out for to pull into their loved one's life. Um, and that's a difficult thing to do sometimes, but it's sometimes, I think, necessary. And And that's something that I think the workplace should make available to the families of responders as a, you know, a a community, as as an outreach from the workplace. Um, You know, a lot of workplaces have some sort of um, outreach program for life events. Um, And I think it'd be easy to fold it into something like that.
1: A really good point, Jamie. And yeah, there should be some kind of training. I, I Like I said, I don't think there's enough out there, but I think families ought to, ought to understand symptoms of, like you said, when, when coping mechanisms are going into the negative direction and especially moving into PTSD. I would hope somebody at the job site would recognize that, but you know, it doesn't hurt for the family to recognize that, too, that it, this isn't a normal coping process. This is something moving in the wrong direction. And, you know, one more thing I think about is, you know, when a responder comes home from a long deployment or something, given what you said, Jamie, they need time to themselves. It took us weeks after ground zero, and I'm sure Joe experienced that after the Pentagon. You know, to get back into a normal routine again, you know, the worst thing they can hear is, oh, the washing machine's broken and the dog did this and your kid did that. And you need to take care of all of this. No, they need to take care of themselves first. Um, and, and that's critically important. So we're going to wrap here. Bex, any you, you guys have added some really good comments on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, any last thoughts, Becky? I think I just want to
3: echo what what Jamie said about open communication. Uh, There really is no such thing as too much communication, especially when it comes to your mental health. If someone hasn't experienced what you have, they don't, they can't possibly understand what you're feeling. Um, And so it's important to, you know, try and, help them understand what you may be going through, what you may be coping with to express what you need in that moment. Maybe it's a pillow and a cup of tea. Maybe it's going to a therapist. Maybe it's going for hikes. Everybody copes in, in, you know, a number of different ways, but it's your spouse, your partner, you know, your family can't truly support you if you don't let them know what you need. Um, You don't have to spell out everything that you saw, you know, anything like that, but it's just to, it's so important to communicate, you know, how you're feeling and, and what your needs are so that you can truly be supported by your family. And I would, I would hope that your family would want to support you.
1: Exactly. Understanding, flexibility, and compassion, I think, are three key words. Dan, final thoughts?
2: Well, I think just to echo what you said, Sam, about finding time for yourself first, I think that applies not just to critical incident stress and Things like this but I think it's just sort of a general thing right make sure you find time for yourself and your life and try to do things that, that you enjoy um, and and that can be and you know a whole variety of, of things depending on, on what your interests are and find time that you can grow as a person and to relax you know and to um, you know sort of think about things that you need to think about so you can you know uh, approach things differently in the future and hopefully take some time to decompress if you need to.
1: And hopefully the family understands that. That's the big issue here is they're not going to feel, hey, you've been gone for three weeks, you know, you need to spend time with us and so forth and so on. They need to understand why you need to decompress, even like Becky said, not with details, but just the fact that you do. Jamie?
0: Yeah, I think that's important. And, and you know, we, we talked a little bit about how This is becoming better addressed in training and educational process from the very beginning with new responders as they go through their academy programs or or their college programs or whatever they might be. Um, The challenge, I think, uh, is met very well by ongoing training, too, and we need to continue to do that as we continue to try to change the culture within our organization's to be more open to managing um, this type of stress. And, and we've talked with um, Dan McGuire about that in the past, how that's changed over time and how some organizations get it better than others. I think Paragon Medical Education Group, our sponsor does a great job of working those types of stress relief understanding into their high-stress training programs where they really bring that experiential training to bear, and part of that process is understanding the aftermath. So I think that that's important to keep in mind. Um, Just um, to thank them, um, I'd urge you to reach out to Paragon Medical Education Group at paragonmedicalgroup.com, also at ParagonMedEDU on Twitter. Uh, you can find them linked in, at disasterpodcast.com on every episode. And, of course, you can always reach out to Joe and the rest of the team there. They are always available to answer questions about anything disaster-related and training-related over at the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. So reach out to them there. Um, Sam, I'm glad you brought this topic up. We really haven't covered this specific topic Um I don't think ever on the show we've touched on it as parts of other episodes, but not as its own topic.
1: Yeah, that's why it's been niggling in my mind that you know we we needed to do this. But I was thinking too that Red Cross, when I worked for them quite a long time ago, but they they had some good materials uh, for families too. So there's stuff out there uh, if you're a family of a responder, whether it's you know your your day to day ems folks or fire or police uh to disaster workers there is information out there if you don't feel you're getting the information you need from your responder so the best thing we can do here is to be prepared and like our meteorologist said a number of times communication is the most important thing you can't always communicate what you don't yet know but prepare them the best way they can.
0: And I do want to make sure we uh, give everybody a chance to sign off. So um, Becky, where can folks find you if they want to follow what you're chatting about online?
3: Yeah, over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex. I am on LinkedIn at Rebecca DePodwin, S-M-S-E-M and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group.
0: Excellent. Dan, how about you?
2: You can find me on uh, Twitter at WX Depot, D-E-P-O, uh, LinkedIn at Dan DePodwin, and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Happy to connect on there.
0: Excellent. Um, and Sam, last but not least, you. Well, uh, in all those various social
1: media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, certainly in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group, I hope there's some discussion about this over there, forthcoming, and on the disasterpodcast.com website.
0: Jamie? And you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations. Um, so please look me up and follow me there. Um, and, um, you know, as, as Sam said, all the disaster podcast channels that we are available on, we, we monitor them. We, we love when people bring in their own articles about disasters and response in their communities and post them in especially the uh, Facebook group. Uh, we get good discussions going on over there. I urge you to come over and join the group if you aren't already there. And um, we'll look for you when you check in.
1: And I have two words to end this show. Be prepared.